Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we are speaking with Dr. Megan Allen. Now, Megan believes that the path to an amazing education for every child is paved by the expert educators who know what student learning looks like, feels like, and sounds like. She believes in her heart of hearts that by building the collective voice of those expert educators, by ensuring that they are leading the way side by side with other stakeholders, and by building on the many bright spots in education, we will have a clearer path to improving student learning for every child. So welcome, Dr. Megan Allen. How are you? I'm awesome. How are you doing, Lily? I'm I'm doing well. We're so happy to have you on our podcast. So as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? Let's do it. Let's do it. Megan, can you tell me a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? Absolutely. So I think like many educators, my path to leadership was kind of by necessity versus by like drive or goals or something that I'd kind of put into place uh, myself. So things were happening within our school and district that me and my colleagues didn't feel like were best for our students. And so you know, I think my path to leadership was by necessity, by realizing that we need to get more teachers involved at the forefront of these conversations about teaching evaluations. And so I was kind of thrown into leadership, happily thrown in with my colleagues. What I'm currently doing now, I'm the director of partnerships for the National Network of State Teachers of the Year. We are the professional home for all the state teachers of the year, the national teachers of the year, and the finalists for state teachers of the year. I myself am the 2010 Florida Teacher of the Year. And so what I currently do now is try to find ways to put teachers at the forefront of educational change in policy, advocacy, and instruction. So I get to spend my time and my days figuring out how to better support teacher leaders, which I love. I also am uh, teaching in a master's program, a master's of arts in teacher leadership at Mount Holyoke College that uses uh, Zoom. So it's all with video conferencing. So teachers can um, participate after teaching a full day, sitting in their living room in their PJ pants with their ramen noodles. Um, I really, really dig into leadership. So that was a program that I developed four years ago for veteran teachers who want to lead, but not necessarily in administration and not just confined to coaching, but lead in a way that they feel meets their skill set, but also meets necessity in their own context. You mentioned that you went into leadership out of necessity, and you mentioned that the climate wasn't the best for the students. And I love how you took responsibility for that. You didn't just throw your hands up and say, oh, well, this is the way it goes. It wasn't just out of necessity. It was out of, I'm assuming, a deep sense of responsibility. Absolutely. I think responsibility, passion, and love. We don't get into education um, because we see it as just a job. We get into education because we have a drive to really help students succeed and fulfill their dreams in life. So I think that love can extend and that passion extends beyond just the classroom, but in leading in areas that help change education to make it even better for every student. 
Right, and you created also this program for teacher leaders, right? It's interesting because the same way that I created this podcast to meet the needs, you can actually listen to a podcast as you're driving. Um, there's no excuses for not growing, <laughs> so, you know. So I can hear the same type of passion in your voice as to why you created this Zoom platform way of learning. Right. So, you know, as we're thrown into these leadership roles or as we walk into them, step into them, step up into them, there are some skills that really transfer from being a classroom teacher, you know, focused on learning and instruction and pedagogy. Some of those things do transfer to working with adults, but there's a lot of differences. And so what I notice is that there's not a lot yet. There's becoming more and more, but there's not a lot yet that really purposefully develops the skills, knowledge, and dispositions for teachers to lead. We have a lot that help teachers build those things in administration. We have a lot that help teachers build those things maybe in coaching or mentoring, but we could really do a better job when we look at the wide range of teacher leadership. When we think about the teacher leader model standards and those seven domains from data to research to instruction to policy and advocacy. And so, what I did is look at what's available for teachers to help them develop the skills, knowledge, and dispositions, and then look at the teacher leader model standards. So what do the standards say? What's the language? What should we be able to do and be thinking about? And then worked with a bunch of my greatest colleagues and getting their feedback about what would help them in better doing the leadership work that they were already involved in. And from that, I developed a 32 credit master's program at Mount Holyoke College. We graduated our first cohort last year. Our second cohort is just entering their uh, catapult capstone semester, which they can do a student-led project, internship, whatever they feel meets their own skills and needs, but also the needs of their individual context. So I think there needs to be more and more of that, more support for teachers to lead the profession and develop the skills to do so, especially when we see the research and the positive impact that teacher leadership can really have on student learning and student outcomes. Wow, that's amazing information. Now, if our listeners wanted to learn more about that program and perhaps even enroll, I was a teacher for over 25 years and I know I would have jumped at the chance. So where could they go to get more information? I'm thinking of two different places that teachers could go for information. One, if you just Google Mount Holyoke College Teacher Leadership. So just Google that and the link will come up. Something that makes this program really unique is that it's taught with university professors, but also with teacher leaders and residents. So you have a practicing teacher that's co-facilitating the courses. And the majority of those teacher leaders and residents are state teachers of the year. We have a partnership with the National Network of State Teachers of the Year, which I work for now. And the master's program is actually built around coursework that state teachers of the year have developed, piloted, field tested. And so you could also, in addition to going to Mount Holyoke College's uh, teacher leadership program, we have those courses available through NSTOI. So connecting with me, um, I'm happy to give you more information on those courses that can be delivered virtually, but also face-to-face. -face. And we also do uh, a train-the-trainer for academies. So if there are districts or schools that are looking to train some teacher leaders to help train even more teacher leaders, we're on it. Give us a call. Thank you so much for that. Now, Megan, how would you describe your leadership style? So 
in helping teachers figure out their own leadership style, I've looked at, you know, every kind of leadership inventory possible. So like strength finder, leadership compass, the color assessment. And I think sometimes we get so caught up in like defining our leadership style, we kind of forget what it's really good for, which is using those kind of assessments or looking at those leadership styles to set goals for growth. So I kind of think it's like the leadership style, not as identifying it as one, but using it as a point to figure out how you're going to grow into even a better leader. So I don't really think too much about how I describe my leadership style. I know what I try to do, what actions I try to do as a leader, and I try to work as catapult or catalyst. So how can I support teachers so they can fulfill what they should be doing to improve education? How can I work as that catalyst to help them grow and impact the profession and students? How can I work as that catapult? So I think less about leadership style, more about leadership action. So what I'm hearing is that as a leader, you look at those who you lead and figure out how you can best serve them so that they can grow. Absolutely. I think leadership is not about a role. It's not about, you know, a title. I think leadership really is about actions and what you do. And I think of a quote I heard recently from Catherine Bassett, who was the 2000 New Jersey Teacher of the Year. And she was saying that, you know, leadership is not about creating followers. It's about creating more leaders. And I think that really speaks to what I try to do every day. And what do I try to inspire and help other teachers do is how can we help create generations of impact by creating more and more leaders. And I think that'll have huge ripple effects on recruitment and retention if we can build momentum around that idea. And I absolutely believe that with all my heart that leadership is about lifting others up and creating more leaders. What type of leader are you inspired by and why? So one of my favorite uh, leadership books is Multipliers. And the idea in Multipliers is that there's something that great leaders do that make those that work with them work not only at their full potential, but at exponential potential. And so there are leaders that I've worked with and I work around that make everyone around them feel successful, feel inspired, feel driven, and feel like ready to conquer the world. Those are the multipliers and and those are the people that I'm really inspired by. I love that. And it speaks to the same thing you were talking about, that great leaders make leaders. Now, Megan, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I've ever received is also the hardest sometimes to practice. Uh (laughs) And it's to listen more than you speak. I think, especially in leadership, sometimes what I see is people take that to mean you are up in front of people doing the majority of the thinking and the talking. In reality, I think more powerful leadership is in the middle or even behind groups of people doing more of the listening and the support. So listen more than you speak. And I think that really helps us kind of grow and figure out how to navigate our own ecosystems, our own environments, our own context, but also figure out how to better support those around us. And from my experience, that takes a lot of practice, right? (laughs) It does. It does. One of the most difficult activities that I've experienced as a teacher was practicing active listening. You know, when we're coaching or being a thought partner to a colleague or even a student, how do we clear our mind of our own to-do list so we can really focus on what the other is saying? And it's so hard to do, but also so important. Part of the reason why I started this is because I need to practice listening. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> right, I've had right. A lot it's of a practice. Before. <laughs> okay, so Megan, what does it mean to have a good team, and how do you build or sustain one? So I feel like this is such an important but overlooked item when we're thinking about putting groups of colleagues, group of teachers together. I think it's almost sometimes like the missing link in school improvement because we assume that because we're adults, we're automatically going to work well together. And just the same as in the classroom when we have to think hard and critically and thoughtfully about how our students interact and how we can help them improve, that kind of human element transfers to adults. I'm thinking of the book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which actually was a book written for the business realm, but I think a lot of those lessons apply to the education realm. I think one of the major foundational pieces for building a good team is trust. And that involves putting time in to build relationships, following through. I think back to the book Multipliers, how to lift people up and play to their strengths and how really to keep learning and education, whether we're talking about students or adults, really relationship-centered. I think that's how we build a good team. You know, I've spoken to quite a few people who practice what you talked about, multiplying leadership, and they keep talking about trust. How do you build trust, especially in a situation, let's say, where it isn't practiced much? Right. How do we build trust? I think that's the million dollar question. This lack of trust, I think, is something that's preventing public education from being as strong as it could, because I think there is this kind of feeling of distrust, not so much within our school buildings, but felt by teachers from outside our school buildings and whether that's with policymakers or administrators at different levels. And I think the only thing that can really build trust, there are actually two things are time. So big chunks of time when you're actually putting in the work. And what does that work look like? Communication, follow through and relationship building. Mm. So I do think trust is kind of like the chink like the broken foundational piece right now in our public education system. And I think we do need to attend a little bit more to that, but it's hard with the complexities that are happening in the policy world right now. The decreasing education budgets that are causing a lack of trust and discomfort between districts and principals and teachers and policymakers. So it's a really complex but really important issue. Right. And I think that if we all collectively really look at how important this is, and we keep talking about how important this is, we would have to work to be more intentional about building that trust. I'm with you. I believe that it is the foundation of how we grow, how we grow our students, how we grow our leadership, how we really educate. So thank you so much for that. Now, Megan, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life? As teachers and as lifelong learners, right, we're constantly faced with challenges. So I think one of the biggest challenges I ever had when I was uh, 19, my mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And at that point in time, um, I was going to college in South Carolina and driving home on the weekends to Florida in order to spend time with her because she was a teacher. She was actually the district teacher of the year in Polk County in the district that I was raised in and went to school in and education was very important to her. So it was not an option for me to take time off school to come home and spend time with her. Like education was the pathway forward. 
So right before I graduated from college, I ended up losing my mom. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Many of us have those experiences in life where they're a darker time where things are kind of not just cloudy, but there's so much unknown. We're kind of questioning everything, questioning our own path, questioning the world's path. And so soon after that, I was in law school because my mom was a teacher. I by no means ever wanted to even consider that as a possibility. And so one night I was watching Allie McBeal with Calista Flockhart. She was the mm-hmm. single attorney. I don't know if you guys remember that show. Yes, from like early 2000s, late 90s. Right. Um, the dancing so, baby. Yeah, the crazy dancing baby. And I'm looking at that and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is my path. I'm going to be the single woman attorney who's like seeing the crazy dancing baby, like this is just not feeling right. Like something's off. And then soon after that came on and I don't think the show portrayed education really well, but I remember clearly Boston public. I remember watching that show and thinking, man, those people are making a difference. They're impacting students. They're changing the world. So I think from this kind of darker time after I lost my mom and kind of questioning my path forward, it really led me to figure out how I could play my part to positively impact the world. And so I called my dad that night. My dad is an attorney. I told him that I no longer wanted to be in law school, but I was 100% certain I wanted to become an educator. And from that challenge was the best decision I ever made. So Wow. So how did your dad respond? (laughs) So my dad lived for years with three strong women, two of them redheaded. So he, (laughs) he is the epitome of supporting others' choices. And he's the epitome of being a multiplier and a listener. So fully supportive. Great. Thank you so much for that. Hey, leaders, if you haven't downloaded your copy of the Master Leadership Journal, go to masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ to get instant access and begin growing your leadership with questions that have been curated by top level leaders. I've also included some cool extras for you at masterleadership.org forward slash MLJ. Can you tell us about one of your greatest successes? There are so many smaller successes that happen in the classroom, especially now that I'm out of the classroom. I've been out for a little over four years. I think a lot about (laughs) credibility and shelf life with that, but that's a different podcast for a different day. Um, So I think being generations removed from a classroom now, I have to try to stay closely connected to the successes I remember in the classroom, because those are the joys that keep us moving forward as educators, whether we're in front of students or not. So I think about, you know, the first student that I had read a chapter book and how, you know, Kiara felt when she actually had that success. I think about, you know, one of my students, Daniel, who ended up being a frustrated student at the beginning of fourth grade, who really didn't like school till at the end of fourth grade, he was like writing poetry and reading books and carrying his book on the way to lunch and just like really loving the whole education experience. So for me, I think my greatest successes are in those small moments that I have on sticky notes or in a sunshine folder or try to keep close to me and to my heart and my mind and my memory, especially now since I'm further removed from the classroom and you know, success looks a little different because of that. And you know, Megan, I love how when I asked you about your greatest successes, you pointed to the successes of others. 
That's remarkable as a leader. It speaks to my heart. It activates my heart. So I'm sure that when this lands on listeners, it will make an impact. So thank you so much for sharing that. Oh, I appreciate it, Lily. Thank you. So Megan, what would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their working climate or culture? I think culture is something we can constantly improve. You know, culture is the way adults and to a certain degree students interact within a school building. It's the way people play together, the way of being. And I think there's always improvement for that. I'm thinking back to School Culture Rewired. I believe the authors are Steve Gruner and Todd Whitaker. They have done a lot of work on and research on school cultures and found that there really is no school that lives in this optimal school culture all the time. Like it's a place that a few schools might visit infrequently, but nobody's actually living there. Everyone's kind of on the scale and working to grow and improve. It's like a family, right? It's like every <laughs> human interaction we have in life, you know, right. it's imperfect. And I think we just have to be okay with that, but know that there's room for improvement. I just want to kind of park here just a little bit because this type of situation does happen often. What advice would you give that new leader? They come into the situation and the foundation is lack of trust instead of trust. So for a leader who's excited about opportunity, but has seen that there's a lack of trust, I think one, find like-minded colleagues who also are kind of seeing this or want to spend some time thinking or researching it. I think leadership is not a solitary act. I think it's much more powerful as a collective, especially knowing that we bring one perspective, but if we work with others, we have the perspectives of many. And so my first suggestion would be to find the like-minded, find your tribe, find people that want to spend time kind of digging into the questions that you have. Right. And then instead, I think we're so eager as teachers to jump right into action and to want to solve something without fully understanding what the problem is. And that's really hard for us to do to kind of hit pause and spend some time teasing out what actually might be happening that's causing that distrust having conversations, observing, doing a little bit of research. So after finding um, your tribe and the like-minded, it would be don't jump right to the solution, but really make sure that you're understanding what the problem is. Because a lot of times it's not initially what we think the problem is. You know, you have a surface level problem, but there's underlying things and a history that has led to that kind of surface level problem. So it takes patience, right? It takes us being reflective and really having someone else speak into our lives because sometimes we're in it and we don't see. Absolutely. And sometimes we're in it and we're too close to be able to see. You know, sometimes the things that are right in front of us are the hardest things to actually put our eyes on. Right. Thank you so much for that. Now, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you and what are you learning now? So I think as educators, learning is our passion. And so that's why I think many of us think that we're lifelong learners. I think also what happens with learning is the more you know, the more you realize that you just know the tip of the iceberg. There's well, this... some people feel that way. <laughs> Hopefully, right? <laughs> right, right. So there's this constant kind of drive to kind of want to figure out things, understand things better, and to move ourselves along that spectrum of knowledge. So, you know, what I'm learning now, I'm really fascinated 
by a lot of the research that's coming out on the connections between teacher leadership and student learning. I'm thinking of Richard Ingersoll's research that came out. I think he surveyed over a million teachers, 16 different states, you know, connecting teacher leadership to student learning. For those of us in the field, it's kind of like, well, duh, of course there's connections. But, you know, for those policy conversations or those conversations with those outside the education field, sometimes with the decision makers, you know, that kind of data speaks, that kind of moves people. And I'm also fascinating with some of the research that came out by Public Impact and the Opportunity Culture Initiative that's looking at hybrid roles with teachers who are supporting their teacher teams and that student learning actually does improve again, with teacher leadership. And they found, especially in math scores and some improvement, not as much as math, but with reading. So that's what I'm fascinated with is more of these like quantitative data points, the research that can really help give teacher leadership legs so we can put teachers at the forefront of these conversations on student learning. Thank you so much. Megan, if there were something you could change in education in the U.S., what would that be? I think we have an inequity problem, an inequality problem. So I think about how some of our students have more tools, resources, and better access to succeed in school and in life. I think part of that relates to recruitment and retention of great teachers, especially at our high-need schools. So if there was something I could change in education, it would be that every student had access to everything that they needed to succeed, and they don't yet. If we work at it collectively, I believe we can achieve it. So thank you so much for that. Now, Megan, what have you read that our listeners should read and why? I'm currently reading The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas and am in love with that book, though it is a very difficult book to read. It's a YA book looking at the experience of a young teenage girl whose friend is shot by a cop. And so I feel like the conversations that I'm having with colleagues about what's happening to our Black and our Brown students and children across the U.S. as a result of, you know, just reading this book, I'm really appreciating that. I think sometimes as passionate educators, too, we get so focused on reading books relating to our profession. I'm guilty of reading like all informational text, all like research, and kind of neglecting the fictional, enjoyable, kind of lighthearted side of reading. So in addition to a book like The Hate You Give, which is kind of a heavier read, a heavier topic, I think also there's, you know, a need for us as educators to read books for pleasure that give our brains a little bit of a break (laughs) from the thing that we're so passionate about. So pick up that People magazine, you know? (laughs) You know, I love that you said this because I'm so intense. I don't like to waste time reading fiction. And so this is good for me. (laughs) You know, it's true. We need some lighthearted things sometimes. And sometimes that can be too intense. Right. I think too, I'm like, if I'm at a cocktail party, what am I going to talk about besides (laughs) education research, right? Like, or what I've just learned about andragogy. Like I need to be a little bit more well-rounded. So I'm curious, what made you pick up the hate you give? I think our national conversation that many of us are having and many still need to be having about how we treat our colleagues who don't look like us. So I feel like societal change begins in our classroom. You know, there's a piece that happens at home with families, but we really have an opportunity in our classroom to create, you know, the next generation of citizens who could do better than we can do. So that's why I feel like books like that are important inside the classroom and outside the classroom. 
that is powerful because to be open to different perspectives and to love those around us enough to do that is something that we need to continue to do. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, you have a lot of responsibilities. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? So, Lily, I drink a lot of wine. (laughs) (laughs) You Um, and I can be good friends. (laughs) No, I try to balance is almost the wrong word. I try to schedule time away from work to spend with those that I love, to spend time with my family or my friends. It sounds like cold that you have to schedule time to do that, but I feel like sometimes when our to-do list for work or when there's like urgency of things happening across the U.S. and education, like we feel almost like guilty spending time with those that we love. At least I do sometimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it's letting go of that and making sure that we are spending time with those people around us. I also, I've gotten into yoga the past few years and I feel like there is no better way to one, make your body hurt, but in a good way. But two, also it's the best practice to help you remember to breathe. Because again, sometimes I feel like with the urgency of what's happening across the U.S. in and outside our classroom, sometimes I find myself forgetting to breathe. And yoga is a great practice that helps um, remind me to breathe. Oxygen's important, you know. It is. is. (laughs) And I love that because when we do yoga, you can meditate at the same time. So there you go. Bam. I'm the worst worst (laughs) meditator though. That's when I make my to-do list. That's the only part I really stink at. So because sometimes we need to imitate others or sometimes we need ideas here. So when you get up, like when you set your mind for the day, tell us what a typical morning looks like for you. I live in a house with five other people. I have four stepchildren. So a typical morning is a little bit more (laughs) harried, I feel like, um, but also focused on school, right? We're trying to get everybody ready for school. So as much as I would love to practice yoga in the morning, it doesn't happen. It's just not a reality of my life right now. I also really like to sleep. So I could say too, I could get up earlier and do yoga before everybody gets up and moving, but I'm also dedicated to my sleep practice. (laughs) And that's important. Right. So for me, it's just taking time during my lunch break to either hop on the treadmill or do yoga. So finding time within the day. Mornings get a little harried, but there's usually other little pockets of time that I'll I'll take time to do that. And how do you wind down? That's a really good question. Yeah, I think this is a really important thing, but also a really difficult thing to practice because Mm -hmm. I feel like it's really easy as educators to spend our day focused on work, whether that's teaching or supporting teachers or whatever our role may be, have dinner, put the kids to bed. And then it's really easy to open that laptop and refocus on work. But what I try to do is make sure that doesn't happen and, you know, enjoy time with my family, playing some games, watch a mindless episode of The Real Housewives on TV. I don't watch that, by the way, just using that as an example, (laughs) but just, you know, really trying to resist the urge to check email and open that laptop up and really focus on spending time with people, whether it's your spouse, your friends, your kids, and not let work kind of seep into our personal life. So though it seems like we're going to get behind on our to-do list, I really think that makes us more functional, more effective, you know, during the time we're focused on work. It doesn't always happen, but it's something that I like to think about. Right. And it takes, again, being intentional because we can easily slip into unhealthy habits, right? Like lack of sleep and being on all the time, which can lead to burnout. I appreciate you sharing this here. 
So Megan, if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? I think if I could give my younger self advice on leadership, that it's not about a role. It's not about a title. It's not about, you know, who you know. It really is about your actions and your way of being in or out of the classroom. So uh, that's the advice I, I wish I, I knew right away. But I also think that's advice too, that sometimes you have to kind of figure out on your own journey, your own leadership journey versus have someone tell you. So even if I time traveled and gave, gave myself that advice, I don't know if I would have followed it or would have seen it that way. Right. And the purpose of having this here is for us to reflect, but also to share that reflection with other people who may be walking in the same steps. And hopefully there's a John Maxwell saying that it's wise to learn from your own experience, but it's wiser to learn from the experiences of others. I love that. Yeah. So Megan, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners that we haven't touched on? Sure. It's more like a call to action, Lily. Right now, we need educators to step up and help lead the profession. There is no perfect time. There will be no perfect project. There's not a perfect role. It's just the work that needs to be done in instruction and policy and advocacy, you know, especially as we have policies that come into place or actions that come into place that don't seem to be in the best interest of our students. You know, parents and teachers really know students the best. Teachers are the experts on student learning and what happens in the classroom. So as the experts, teachers must step up and help lead the profession so we can transform education for every student. Awesome. Now, if our listeners wanted to reach you, what would be the best way to do that? I am a huge fan of Twitter. That's how I do a lot of my professional learning and have a lot of my professional conversations. So you can find me on Twitter and that's at Redhead Teacher and R-E-D-H-D-T-E-A-C-H-E-R. So head has no vowels. Sorry to all the English teachers out there. Wonderful. Megan, again, I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Lily, and I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's been so much fun. Absolutely. All right, you too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.